listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. We're talking today at World Ag Expo with Ben Lane of Rabobank. He's one of their dairy economists, and he's going to bring us up to date on some of his latest findings. So federal orders, yes, something been, you've looked at? Yeah, we've been looking at it. It's, it's you know, we're past the first full year of the, of the federal order system. Yeah. So we're trying to uh, trying to see what that what that's meant, what the impact has been. It's really hard to compare apples to apples when we're looking at how things have been before compared to now, just because right. it's structured so differently. But some of the outcomes of that has been that you're on a level playing field now with kind of the rest of the country. So it's easier now to compare California to the rest of the country, if not California now compared to the past. But it also gives you some new transparency to things like the quota system has, has you know, been been talked about quite a bit, and a lot of that's because it's more visible on, on in terms of a line item on the check and seeing well, no, what that seeing what that means. Um, so th- I think you know there's an added layer of transparency, but there's also some additional confusion that comes along with it, just with a new system. So sorting through some of that and and making sure that things don't get lost in kind of a a mixture of confusion from some of these new factors uh, has been what we're, we're we're trying to do and shed a little bit of light on on what some of these things mean. As you know, California quota is front and center right now, with various efforts to either stay the course or make change. Many dairy organizations are pretty cautious about expressing preferences one way or the other uh, because in their memberships they've got producers who have quota and producers who don't have quota from a banker's perspective uh, how, how are you or how is Rabobank assessing what's going on with uh, what I'll call the turmoil in California quota right now you know I think we are probably in a similar boat where you know it's a very divisive and, and issue and there's a lot of a lot of you know strong opinions on either side and there's a lot at stake there and, and so I think that yeah, we don't have a firm position on, on what the right way forward would be. We, we just want to make sure that whatever the future looks like for that, you want to see it go through some sort of smooth transition so that, so that no one's abruptly, there's no major abrupt kind of disruption and, and you can, to the extent possible, move through it pretty smoothly. So that's, that's our main concern. We don't have a firm position either way on, on what should happen. And I presume in your client base you've got folks with a full range of quota from heavily covered by quota to those who um, may not be covered at all by quota. Yeah, I, w- I would think so. I don't know for sure what that what that breaks down, but yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a little bit of both and uh, you know, there's there's strong opinions on either side and value all those customers so we don't, you know, whatever whatever the situation is and however however California producers end up deciding that that this should be moved through, that's you yep. know, we want to see that happen smoothly. As you look at the larger industry across the country, what is your 2020 assessment in terms of milk supply and therefore price? Do you you see some sort of a bounce back in terms of supply, or do you think any increase will be a little bit more moderate? Yeah, I think we'll probably see increases in milk production growth more than we saw in 2019. It was relatively flat for most of 2019. Um, I think we'll probably see more than that this year, but it's still going to be below trend. We're still going to see it somewhat limited. 
I think compared to years past when you'd see margin improvement and milk price increases and everyone would just surge forward in, in production, I don't think that'll be the case this year uh, because it's been such an extended period of tough times that a lot of folks are going to use these higher milk checks to rebuild balance sheets. They're going to be getting to some deferred maintenance and things like that rather than just going and, and expanding production. You've also got with the latest cattle report, you've got, got the lowest replacement heifer numbers in, in several years. So I, I think things are looking like, yeah, we'll want to continue to see production grow, but there's a number of factors, I think, that are going to limit how much that can happen, which is positive for prices. So I think that's helping us keep the market relatively tight, keep supply relatively um, <laughs> held back, and that's going to be supportive of prices for, for this year. Cantus comes to the market in 2020 with a new vision for animals, farmers, and food production. Our world-changing technology combines computer vision and artificial intelligence to watch over your business 24-7, alerting you when it matters most. We help you make data-driven decisions to improve your dairy operation and animal health, positively impacting productivity and profitability. Cantus is keeping an eye on your farm and an eye on your future. To learn more about us, log on to Cantus.com today. As you look at your client base or the industry as a whole, you just mentioned the heifer population. Are you seeing, uh, can you confirm, I guess, that that trend of fewer heifers per dairy on average or at least some dairies we know have reduced heifer inventories. How, how big a factor is that? Is that anecdotal or is that something you can trace across the industry? Yeah, I think it's probably happening for a number of reasons. I think the, the move towards using genomics and sex and semen and, and some of the dairy beef crosses, some of these technologies have helped drive the way producers are managing their heifer inventories and not going with the mindset that we just need as many and keep them all it's it's more a little more strategic um, you know it's costlier to to raise them now it's it's that's been relatively costly so you know it's it, it's a different calculation and i think people are looking at it differently and instead of recent history or you know historically even where it's really just kind of keep growing keep trying to get as many heifers and, uh, as you can and keep expanding i think there's going to be a little bit of a period of trying to right size and find that optimal position and manage your heifer inventory to to make sure you're you're where you want to be and you're optimizing your operation at whatever that scale is and when you know when you want to expand when you decide that's the right way to go forward then you can you can do that but in the meantime, I think it's it's moved out of the mindset of just keeping every heifer and, and, and growing as much as you can to let's try and, and optimize this a little better and, and if not always chase a larger scale, try to optimize and, and, and work best at the scale you're at. A couple trends from a genetic standpoint, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about with the use of uh, genomics across uh, a significant number of herds, both commercial and, and purebred. Does this, in, in focusing on the higher genetics of the heifer herd, are you seeing, do you, you feel that is beginning to drive production or have a, any other impact on, on the herds? Yeah, I think that's going to be more of a factor too, and that's part of the reason why you don't necessarily always need to expand in terms of cow numbers, is that 
you're you're trying to get a better base in, in a stronger herd to begin with. So you're you're working with a better better genetics. You're you're able to make better decisions about which replacements you want back in your herd and which genetics you want to maintain in your herd so that you can optimize based on based on the environment you're operating in, based on things like the climate, your different feed availability, um, and, you know, take a look at your own operation. Look at the traits that would benefit that operation and would be able to make, you know, the highest yield, the most milk production in that scenario, and then select for those traits using genomic testing. I think it's it's really a matter of a lot more data, a lot more information, and, and better analysis, and, and it's a it's a data tool, really. It gives you a lot more to work with in making those decisions. So it's it's opened a whole new world, I think, for the folks that are that are using genomic testing heavily. That gives them a lot more information and a whole different way to look at managing their herds and, and making those decisions. Uh, another aspect of this changing uh, breeding approach is of course the use of beef bulls on uh, a portion of the herd. What are you seeing in that in that regard? Yeah, that's definitely growing in popularity as well. I think that evolved out of sort of some necessity out of the challenges the last few years. Folks were looking for any revenue stream they could find, and that was you know a combination of some of the packers not wanting to deal with with the straight Holsteins and and you know finding the right supply chains and also just looking for is there a little bit more revenue to be had there and can we improve that and so it, it kind of came out of necessity in that way but it's it's been evolving quite a bit and i think some some people are really finding different crosses experimenting with different crosses figuring out how to optimize that working better at trying to partner with the beef industry and, and rather than just kind of you know trying to get some baseline uh, beef genetics in there, really figuring out what the right pairing of the, the beef genetics and the right bull to match with the, the, the qualities of their herd and really partner up with the beef supply chain and figure out what, what are they looking for, how can I supply that and so you're seeing, you know, it's still going through an evolution, there's still a lot of experimenting going on and figuring out what those right balances are but I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot of good opportunity on both sides there, there's a lot of benefit on the beef side there's the you know better benefit in terms of the dairy improving and adding new revenue streams there, but but the beef side definitely is, is seeing benefit where it's working too. So I think it's it's evolving. It's going to be it's going to become a more prominent um, feature of the industry and something that we're going to continue to see. Even even once things get better in terms of milk price and margin, and it's not really about necessity anymore, it's something that's going to become just a normal part of operating for a lot of people now. As you look at the cattle markets uh, and cattle populations looking forward, we've heard some optimistic sounds coming from the uh, from the beef side in terms of cattle on feed and cow calf populations. W- what is your assessment of the of the beef market for 2020? I don't have a good, a really good handle on the beef side of things. I don't to mean. Be honest, I, yeah, that. I, I don't mean, I mean to take you out of your. Uh, out of your expertise <laughs> right uh, but obviously beef does have a you know plays a role it does and I think one of uh, relatedly one of the, the other benefits of some of of a stronger involvement on the dairy side of supplying the beef industry is you don't have the same seasonality they and that's part of what beef likes is you don't have to look at these kind of seasonal cow cow calf populations and herd numbers and 
define it as a season really you can for the right supply chain you can have a pretty consistent year-round supply coming from dairy so that's another factor that's going to change that that's going to take some of that out of the equation and i think that's that's one of the other benefits that they're seeing is is taking some of the seasonality out of there better age source verification when it's coming off of uh, dairies which is better for them in terms of exportability in a lot of cases so yeah i think it, it's going to change the perspective on both sides on the beef side and on the dairy side to some extent but it's it's come a long way to zero in on if you would on on the dairy aspect of beef that do you see changes in the cull cow market particularly as you as you look ahead or work with producers on their on their financial projections well yeah i think it'll have it'll have changes on that it's going to go from the more of a higher value product you start making as a result of some of these crosses it, it will you know the flip side of that is it, it is going to depress some of the value of, of the tr- traditional straight Holstein and straight dairy culls and and, and uh, steers and things like that so that that will have to some degree it's going to depress the market for those but there are also the, I mean there's supply chains that rely on on those animals and that's going to it could even tighten up those markets to some degree the more people start shifting towards aiming more for, for some of these uh, crosses. Some of the straight Holstein markets might even tighten up in some cases. So they'll still have their own dynamics, but on a whole, yeah, it does kind of, you know, you keep adding sort of this next tier, this next premium, and that, that sort of shifts everything else down just a notch. But I think there's, there's, still, there's still some good ways forward all around. Again, looking macroeconomically, perhaps, uh, we've seen global trade issues, uh, and perhaps there's beginning to be some resolution of a number of those areas. Besides trade, are there other macro factors that that you feel are going to be impacting dairy as we look ahead to 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think the one you got to look at is that there's always kind of this ever-present concern about the looming recession or when the economy is going to turn around but it's it's hard to know exactly when that'll be but it's we're probably closer to the uh to the end of this business cycle than we are to the beginning of it so at some point things are going to turn around and we're in a situation now where milk prices are getting better that's driven by higher dairy product prices and at some point those higher milk prices get transmitted through the supply chain back to the consumer and if the consumer starts you know feeling in 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 more difficult times they're feeling pressure on their on their wallets you got to worry are they still going to be willing to pay these higher prices and i think domestic consumers largely for most products are gonna are gonna do pretty well depending on the degree of of a turnaround in the economy but that is the concern going forward is if if you see some kind of economic recession here in the U.S. or with any of our major trading partners, that becomes a concern. And, and you, you can look at places like South America, Brazil, and Argentina that have gone through and come out of or are still in some degree of recession. You see dairy consumption being impacted there, and that's, you know, that, that is one of the side effects. So I think that's the one area of concern that we have to take a little caution as we see these higher milk prices is remember that at the end of the day, that means somebody on the other end has to be paying higher prices for for their dairy products and that's fine right now but if things turn around then then we gotta gotta hope they're still willing to do that as as things get a little bit tighter to kind of wrap up here as you look ahead to 2020 are you forecasting a little better prices to producers on average than we saw in in 2019 yeah or or, uh, 
how do you see that that price curve uh, developing in the in the next uh, almost three quarters? Now we're almost through the first quarter. Right. Yeah. No. I think yeah. The the first quarter tends to be relatively lower. You tend to start the start the year at a, at a lower price just seasonally. That's just the nature of it. And I think we're seeing that, but still we're at a relatively higher tier. So I do think 2020 is still shaping up to be stronger than 2019. It would be the another peak year of the three-year cycle, and, and you know it's it's always hard to tell how much to buy into that. But it is it has historically been a pretty reliable pattern, and this would be another peak year. So I think there's a lot of factors between the cyclicality of it that should point to higher milk prices, a stronger non-fat dry milk market, and skim milk powder inventories around the world are pretty tight. So I think there's there's a lot of strength there. Um, and that's relatively new, too. I mean, we're coming out of an era where we've seen higher value fat, higher butter prices that have driven the fat value on the farm, and now that's shifted a little bit. We're seeing stronger cheese and non-fat dry milk prices, and that's driving protein values and, and the skin side of things. So that's that's going to add a little volatility while, while a lot of handlers and processors kind of reevaluate their product mix, but... Overall, on average, I think 2020 is shaping up to be a pretty good year. I think that's a great way to conclude our conversation. We've been speaking with Ben Lane, a dairy economist at Rabobank. This is Joel Hastings for Dairy Voice and DairyBusiness.com.